everybody. So if you're new or haven't been here for a while, um, we're doing a series called The Gospel Through the Bible, and it's exploring the gospel through the Bible, which the whole point of this is to allow people who don't know the Bible very well to kind of get to know it a little bit and its themes throughout. And it's also to help us see Jesus on every page and every story of the Bible because Jesus claimed that he, every story and every theme of the Bible was ultimately about him. And so uh, that's what we're doing. Um, last week, so the last, last week and this week, is, it's sort of two parts of the story of the same guy, a guy named Abraham in the Bible, who started, his name started off as Abram, ended up as Abraham. And so last week we did a whole bunch of stuff on him. And one of the things that, one of the climaxes of that story that happens right about in the middle is in chapter 15, verses 6 and 7, God makes this promise to Abraham. And it says that Abraham believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. That is, that when Abraham believed the promise God made him, God credited righteousness to Abraham, or he counted him right or just with himself. Set Abraham right with God and everything else. Um, So part of the question that arises from that half of the story is, well, okay, well, then what counts as faith, right? If it's not by our works or our performance— or our presumption that we're right with God, that we become right with God. If God counts us right with himself because we believe his promise, then b- that word believe and what, what that accounts for really matters. What, what is real faith, right? And so that's what I want to talk about in relationship to the rest of the story of Abraham. And there's two basic pictures that that story gives of, you know, real meaningful faith. Um, yesterday, so for example, if you see some people like getting up or sitting down and are kind of sore, they, they you know, they might just be not agile, but one of the reasons might be that they were at the, the church work day yesterday, right? There, we did, if you came in, you saw like the stuff laid out on the street. And so one of the things that was happening was um, Craig Fonzen was here working. And if you don't know Craig, he's like, you know, 60, had open heart surgery several months ago. And, you know, here he is at the church work day, right? And so the job that he was given was to trim the white pine on the, this far side of the building, which hadn't been trimmed in, you know, 70 years or something like that. And so, and he was given as the tool of his trade, one of those carpenter saws that like has a little plastic handle and like the metal blade from like Menards or something, right? And so he's kind of, you know, he's like sawing away at some of the branches, right? And I was just like, hey, Craig, let's, uh, let's get that thing, let's get that thing trimmed, right? And so what do we both do, right? We laughed, right? Because that's not going to happen, Right? It was kind of like, that's never going to happen, laughter. And you're kind of laughing at the idea that that tree's going to get trimmed, because it's not going to get trimmed, right? <clears throat> He'll cut a few branches off it. A couple soccer moms won't die, but that's really all that's going to happen this year. And so, but then I'm like, I'm watching him saw that thing, and I go, wait, wait a second. I mean, my house is less than a mile from here. I have a chainsaw, right? So I'm like, hold on a minute. So I get my truck, drive over to the house. Yes, I drive a truck. And I got my chainsaw, right? I come back. <clears throat> Who doesn't like working a chainsaw? So I buzz that thing up, and I just, like, cut the stew out of this tree. I mean, I mean, just, woo! And we just—because the thing is, you don't just have to cut the limbs off. you got to cut them into four-foot sections or they won't take them. So I, like, busted that thing out, and it's like—it is a—it's a, it's a still farmer made in West Germany. Right? It's like 30 years old, right? But that sucker still runs like nobody's business. So I cut that thing up, went across the parking lot, slayed this other tree over there. It was awesome. So much fun. And so I get back, and Craig and I are standing around looking at this tree. And we just—and what do we do? We laughed. Because it, it was done. Right? And that's one of the 
themes of faith in the story of Abraham. What's faith look like? What does it mean to come to faith? Well, here's what it means. It means from going from somebody who laughed at the promise to somebody who laughed at themselves for not believing the promise. Right? From somebody who looked at something that couldn't be done and to go, that'll never happen, to somebody who's like, I can't believe that I didn't believe that that was going to happen. Now, in order to probably get that straight, we got to look back at the life of Abraham. And I'm, this is going to go a little fast. Oh man, I didn't start my clock again. They had to pull me off with the cane last service because I forgot to. <laughs> Just kidding. Almost. Um, so let, we got to go through the story of Abraham. So let's do that. So Abraham um, is this guy, right? Yeah, you and I are having a moment there. Okay, so um, Abraham starts off, he's nobody, right? He has an infertile wife. He has his nephew of his dead brother. His father dies, and they're living in a town named after his dead brother, and he's nobody, right? And so at, at that moment, God gives him a promise, and he says, listen, Abraham, I want you to leave this land that you know, and you have some roots in, and go to this other land you know nothing about, and I'm going to bless you there. I'm going to fulfill this promise for you, and through you, all the nations in the whole world are going to be blessed. It's going to be great. And Abraham actually does it. Like, he picks up all the stuff, and he moves this whole other land. Um, there's a drought. He goes down to Egypt, and when he's in Egypt, um, well, here's the, here's the thing you need to know. Sarai, his wife, who becomes Sarah later, um, she is inordinately foxy. Like, this woman is way too good-looking for her own good. She's, like, got the 50 helping share, apparently, of hotness. And so they go down to, to Egypt, and, and Abraham is apparently, like, concerned. Somebody's going to, like, get him out of the way so that they can get Sarah for a wife. And so he says, when we go to Egypt, just say, you're my sister. And so that's the arrangement they reach. So they get there, and Pharaoh finds out that this woman is apparently unmarried, and this guy Abraham's his sister. And so he, like, takes her as one of his harem wives, and, like, that's how that goes. And so God actually curses Pharaoh's whole, whole household until he figures out that Sarah is actually somebody's wife. And so he's like, dude, that's not cool. But when he sends them out because he was cursed, he blesses them. And so Lot and Abraham and Sarah leave Egypt inordinately wealthy. Okay? They come into the promised land, and now they have—so what's wealth if you're a nomadic sheik? Right? It's like sheep, right? And so it's not like you're carrying gold. So, the, so Law and Abraham have all these sheep, so many that they can't graze in the same region. And so they've got to like split up in regions. And so Law, Abraham goes like, Law, you want the, uh, you want the grassland down there or you want the hill country? And Law goes, if it's all the same to you, I will have the watered grassy land and you can have the rocky hill country. And so Abraham goes, perfectly fine with me. And right after that, as he— God comes to me and says, all right, well, this is great that you get the rocky land because you can't stay in one place, which means you're going to get to travel all through the land I've promised you. That's what I want you to do. So Abraham becomes a sort of nomadic person. He's going all around grazing his flocks, and he's seeing this whole land that God's promised. About that time, Lot's decided to live in this little town called Sodom. It's a little bit of a famous name. You might have heard of it. And um, Sodom, the king of Sodom, as well as, you know, nine or ten other kings were paying tribute to this behind-kicking king in southern Iran called Ketalomer. At one point, they decided, we're not doing this anymore. And so Ketalomer's like, um, oh no, you didn't. And so he takes a year to get together this big army, and he starts behind-kicking his way through Syria— and then he gets to this last king, and there's the five kings left, and there's—he's got four in his army. And the five kings are like, we should all get together and fight at the same time. So it's like five against four. So they do that. They fight this big battle, but the five still lose because Ketalomer is Ketalomer the butt kicker, right? So they lose, and Ketalomer takes everything—women, children, wealth, animals, everything— and is hauling them all back to Iran, right? And well, one of the people he's hauling off is Lot. And so Abraham finds out about this. He's like, oh my gosh, we got to go after my nephew. So he gets the 318 fighting men in his household and his two sheik buddies from Mamre. He's like, we're going to go do this. So at like 80 years old, 
he gets on a horse, rides a hundred miles, sneak attacks four kings, including Ketalomer the behind kicker, right? Who's usually pretty good at warfare, and wins. And doesn't just like get lot and run. He like defeats these people, sends them back with their tails between their legs, takes all of the wealth back and gives it back to the people it belongs to. Right after that, in chapter 15, God comes to Abraham and remakes the promise. So now this is the third time God has come to Abraham, and he says, listen, look at the heavens, if you can count the stars, if you can even count them, so shall your offspring be. And this is the moment where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right? And if you listen to the sermon from last week, if you haven't heard it, I talk more about the promise and covenant and all what that means. Now, what that means is that the dynamic of faith, how we come to be set right with God is, God makes a promise— we believe it. God credits righteousness to us. That's the dynamic of faith. That's the dynamic of how we're saved. And the, the means by which we're saved is the, is the blessing. It's the promise, which is ultimately the blessed one, Jesus. Okay, that's how Christian salvation happens, right? Now, you would think that after this, right, Abraham believes God, has credited him as righteousness, there's a covenant, everything's going pretty well. At this point, it would be pretty much clear sailing from here, Okay. Abraham's kind of got it. Off we go. Well, not really. Because the very next verse, after chapter 15 gets done, you get into chapter 16, and Sarah comes to her husband, and she goes, listen, I get this whole promise thing from God, but, you know, the Lord has kept me from having children. And if we're going to have a line, um, and your Syrian slave from Damascus isn't going to inherit everything you've accumulated, we've got to come up with another way. And I have a servant— from Egypt named Hagar, and you should sleep with her, and she'll have a son, hopefully, and we'll build a line through her, right? And, you know, Abraham's like, so you, you want me to sleep with your younger woman slave? Oh, okay. So, so he kind of goes for that, and the moral of the story with Sarah and Hagar is um, Hagar does get pregnant, she does bear a son, and the point of the story here is everybody takes the low road. Everybody. So Abraham, like, goes along with this. Sarah comes up with a terrible idea with a capital T. And you think, well, poor Hagar. I mean, she's a slave. She's a disempowered one. You know, surely she's fabulous. Well, yeah, except on, it says once she realizes she's pregnant, she starts treating Sarah like Sarah's not the boss anymore. She's like, I'm the one who's got the child, baby. Mm. And so, and so you'd think Sarah would react to that very humbly. Not exactly. She mistreats her, so she runs away. God has to send an angel to send her back, and like, okay, this has—you got to make this work, and blah, 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 blah. Right? It's just awful. Because they decided to help God make the promise happen, right? Um, then in verse um, 17, or I'm chapter, in chapter 17, God shows up again, and now— So, so when, when the Hagar and Sarah thing happened, okay— Abraham was 85. It had been 10 years. Like, you're kind of like, what kind of idiot tells their husband to sleep with— It had been 10 years. These, these folks were not exactly spring chickens, okay? This is eight, 75 to 85. And so, so, so here's the thing. So, so Ishmael is born, and then it's another number of years until Abraham is 99, 24 years from the original promise. That God shows up again in chapter 17, and he says, hey, you're going to have a son. And it says in chapter 17, 17, 18, it says this, Abraham fell down, fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, that is, he laughed to himself and said to himself, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? 
And Abraham, so that, that's what he said. Like, God can't hear you if you're like this, facing down, right? <laughs> right? And then so he turns to God and he says, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Meaning, why don't you fulfill your promise through Ishmael? I got a 13-year-old son already. Why don't you just redirect your promise to Ishmael and just not worry about this whole thing? Because I'm 100, she's 90, this is not going to work, right? And so God comes back and he says, a couple of verses later, he says, God says, yes, meaning, yes, I will bless Ishmael. I'm not going to curse him. Even though you did a cursed thing, your son isn't guilty, and I am going to bless him, but not with the blessing. He's not going to bear the promise. I will give him promises, and God gives these extraordinarily generous promises to Hagar and Ishmael. But he says, not the promise. I have decided that this is going to be a miracle, and I am going to bring it about through your infertile wife, Sarah, who's 90. Right? So he says, yes, but your wife will bear you a son, and you are to call him Isaac. Isaac's name means he laughs. Right? It's a little sarcastic of God, right? So yeah, oh, Abraham, you're going to laugh? Okay, here's, here's the thing. I, you're, Sarah is going to have a son, and you're going to name him he laughs. So every time you call his name the rest of your life, you get to remember this. How about that? I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Right? And then it says, On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household, or bought with his money, and every male in his household, and circumcised them as, the God, as God told him. Because in that, in that passage, chapter 17, he changes Abraham and Sarah's names. He says, Sarai will now be called Sarah, right? Exalted princess, mother of many nations, and you'll be called Abraham. Right? Instead of Abram means exalted father, Abraham means father of many nations. He changes their name, and he starts the covenant of circumcision, which is, of course, hilarious, because you can imagine how that meeting goes, right? There's like, you know, there's at least 300 men in his household, right? Like, 10 years ago, he had 318 fighting men. So he's talking to like 400 guys, and he's like, so here's what we're going to do, you know? And they're like, um, right? But he does it. So, so it says, on that very day, that is, he responds in faith. He does something. He acts, Right? Okay, so in the next chapter, in chapter 18, is the story of the three visitors. That is, Abraham and Sarah are—they're camped out where they are, and these three people show up representing God. And the second half of chapter 18 is about Abraham pleading for Sodom. And that is just another sermon entirely. But in the first half of chapter 18, essentially, God has shown up to repeat the promise so that Sarah hears it and knows it herself. So this isn't only a promise given just to Abraham, to Abraham, to Abraham, to Abraham. At this point, God comes to make sure Sarah hears the promise. And in chapter 18, it says this. Where is your wife Sarah? They asked. They asked him, that is Abraham. There in the tent, meaning right there. And you can imagine that he, with, around strange men, he keeps his wife in the tent, I guess is the way they, they're doing that now, right? Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? 
I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And then this is one of my favorite verses in Genesis. Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> uh, yeah, you did. Um, and so you see the, the laughter theme again. So Abraham has already laughed at the promise, right? And God said, why don't you call your son Isaac? He laughed, so you can remember that. So then what happens? Then Sarah laughs at the promise. Both of them believe the promise is laughable on one level, but on the other level, what does Abraham do? He goes out and circumcises 400 guys in belief of the covenant promise. Which goes to show saving faith isn't perfect. It's often intermittent, but it has some kind of reality to it. Right? Okay, so then what happens, right? So at that point you think, Okay, so Sarah's received the promise. Abraham's received the promise. They actually have a name for the kid. They're going to have a kid in less than a year. Surely now it's going to be clear sailing. Surely now, Abraham, like in chapter um, 19, I think it is, or 18, God says, walk before me and be blameless. And you're like, surely, surely now, Abraham, the father of all faith, is going to walk blamelessly. <laughs> Not exactly. Because right after that, so that's when Sodom gets destroyed. So Abraham doesn't have any reason to be on that side of the valley anymore. His, he, he, fig, he probably figures his nephew's dead. Because Sodom goes up in a cloud of fire, right? And Lot apparently doesn't go find Abram. They go live in a cave. And that gets really weird. If you want to read that, go ahead and read that. Um, and then Abraham, like, Sodom's gone. So he actually moves across See, Sodom's over here. So he goes over the hill country down into this big plain area, and he goes to live near this town of Gerar. And the issue there is he goes in, and, and he's living in the town, and so they decide to go back to the she's my sister method of avoiding trouble. And you're like, are you serious? Are you, are you kidding me? You have to be kidding me. Are you serious? She's 90. Is she that hot that you have to, like, right? And so what happens? So Abimelech, the guy who's the king of this, this little city-state, finds out about Sarah, and pulls her into the harem. But he hasn't actually done anything with her yet. He's just—and so now you're kind of like, oh man, this is like a soap opera. I mean, Abraham's already got this illegitimate child through Hagar. God has just said that Sarah's going to be fertile now, right? And now Abimelech's got her, and now she, what's she going to have? I mean, Isaac's going to be the third son, right? And so, it, you know, Abimelech's trying to get a good night's sleep, and God shows up in his dream, and he goes, dude, you are dead meat. And the guy's like, Seriously? And in his dream, apparently, he goes, he goes he's like, like I, I don't know who—I I did this with a clean conscience and with clean hands. And, he, and God basically says, this is really funny, he goes, no, you did it with a clean conscience, and so I kept your hands clean. Because he hadn't touched her yet, right? He goes, he goes, no, 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 no. It was my providence that kept your hands off of her. And I did that because you really didn't know who she was, right? And so Ben looks like, dude, that is not okay, right? And so now, see, this is the fun question that comes up. How long is God going to put up with this? Right? I mean, you know, to put it in what you, you know, what you tell your, your middle-aged kid who can't get a girl or boy interested in them, you know, there's, there's plenty of sheiks in the sea, right? I mean, God can just pick somebody else. I mean, what, what is it about Abraham that's so interesting? Like, at what point is God going to say, I don't need this? I don't need this guy. I don't need this. I don't need to do this. Because if you look at the covenant, God demands things of Abraham when he makes the promise. He doesn't make it unilaterally. He doesn't say, you can do whatever you want. Hopefully you'll be good, but you can do whatever you want, but I'm going to fulfill my end of the deal. No, he doesn't say that. He just does it. 
That's the funny thing about salvation and about the gospel is that it isn't actually unconditional. It doesn't say you can do whatever you want and God is going to be totally faithful to you no matter how faithless you are. That's not what it says. But yet when you actually read the Bible, do you know what you find out over and over and over again? That God chooses to fulfill his covenant again and again and again after we fail. God is not contractually bound. Abraham is not walking blamelessly like God told him to. And yet, here's what, here's what the next verse says. Oh, sorry, that was the picture for she's my sister. Right? In, in chapter 21, it says, Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name Isaac to his, the son that Sarah had borne him. And when the son, his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, this is the sentence, God has brought me laughter and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Right? Do you see the theme? What, what, is it, what does it look like? Well, it looks like a faith that before that faith became ripe, you would laugh at the promise of God. And then afterwards, you're like, I was so stupid. And you're really happy. Like when you laugh, when you really can laugh because you are so dumb for not believing it, right? It's a happy laughter. It's not an angry one. It's not like a, oh, you're hurting my self-esteem. <laughs> it's not like that. It's a real, it's a jolly laughter, Right? It's a, it's a, I don't have to take myself so seriously. The truth is good. I can just laugh. I was so silly. God is so good. At our last meeting we were on the youth pastor search committee, we were talking about what we needed to have in youth pastor. We were like, they need to be theologically sound. They need to love teenagers. Need to love. And I was like, okay, those are all good. I will not hire somebody without a good sense of humor. They have to be able to make fun of themselves. They have to think they are hilarious. They ha- I want them to be serious about God, silly about themselves. And one of the things I actually love about Lloyd is that he has the capacity to be really serious about God and really jolly. Right? Um, there is a laughter that comes only with humility, where you can laugh at yourself. You can see the good jokes about your own stupidity. You can realize that you were the fool all along, that God was right all along, that he, there was every reason to believe in him. It's that I couldn't see it. And now, isn't it hilarious? And now everybody who hears about this will laugh with me at me because of what God has done. That's what faith looks like. It goes from laughing at the promise to laughing at ourselves because of the fulfilled promise. Right? But there's another picture— and the scary thing here is that um, it, it actually, it turns into like a Hitchcock M. Night Shyamalan movie. Like there's this sort of, everything's going fine, and then there's this like twist at the end. Like you think everything's kind of going along just fine, and throughout the whole story, God has been like, you know, he's just been riding around on his white horse with his white hat. He is totally the good guy, totally faithful, always the same. It's Abraham and Sarah you just cannot rely on, and he's sticking with them, and he's the sheriff, and isn't that fantastic? And then all of a sudden, it just takes a turn. And, you, and it leaves you wondering, what on earth is happening? And it starts in Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, meaning at, this is after Isaac's been weaned. He's probably somewhere between like 7 and 13 years old, Isaac is at this point. This is years later, 
Everything's going great. The promise has been fulfilled. Everything's going to happen just like God said. You know, Sarah finally has laughter. Things are happy in the household of Abraham. God shows up one more time. He says, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Right? That's weird. The very next line is this. Early the next morning, Abraham got up, and he saddled his donkey, and he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he'd cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. Now I want to read verses um, 4 to actually 19 in Genesis 22. That's on page 30 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. It won't be on the slides because you need to hear the story. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkeys while, donkey while I go. I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told them about, Abram, Abraham built an altar, and there he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to harm him. I know, I'm sorry, anything to harm him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. So to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And as the sand on the seashore, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And therefore, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. It's quite a story. There's two things that really, two odd things that kind of stand out that are sort of juxtaposed to each other. In one sense, as you read through the story in, in Genesis 22, it's extremely clear that Abraham is dead serious about sacrificing Isaac. There's no question about that. From, the, from the, the early the next morning to when he takes the knife into his hand to slay his son, there is no question that he's going to do it. And yet, twice in the passage, he says he's not going to have to. Once with his servants, he says to the servants, my son that was, Isaac and I are going to go over there, we're going to sacrifice him, then we're, then we're going to come back to you. Right? And then when they're walking along, Isaac says, you know, where's the—where's, you know, we got—we got—there's four things required, Dad, for a— I mean, I know you're over 100, so you might not have, right? There's four things required. We're missing one of them. That is, there's supposed to be an animal, right? And he says, 
the Lord, right? The Lord will provide the animal. Now, on one level, you can read that kind of cynically and say, well, you know, if he's 100 and the kid's like 13, you don't want to tell him you're going to kill him, you know, when you've got to still drag him a mile. So, you know, better to say, you know, something like that. Don't tell him, right? I mean, can you, I mean, I've had, I've had a hard enough time dragging my 10-year-old somewhere, you know? I mean, so, and, you know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty spry, you know? So, anyway, so he's, he's going there, but, but here's the thing. You, I don't think you should read those cynically. I think Abraham didn't know what was going to happen. And in fact, if you, when you go on in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews actually—sorry, I'll go back to that in just a second. The author of Hebrews actually says, no, this is, this is how Abraham had it worked out. When, when, he went, when Abraham went to go sacrifice Isaac, what, what Abraham knew is that God had explicitly promised that the promise would come through Isaac. So he knew what was not going to happen is he wasn't going to sacrifice Isaac, and then he was going to have another son, and then— I mean, he, it wouldn't have even worked if he had another son by Sarah and named him Isaac, because God had explicitly said, through this son Isaac, I will fulfill my promise. So you see, Abraham believed that if God was true to his word, this son Isaac was going to carry on the promise, and he was going to carry it on through having offspring. And yet, God had said, or God's angel had told him, go and sacrifice your son. Those two do not work together. <laughs> And so the author of Hebrews says, Abraham had reasoned that God could raise Isaac from the dead. That's the only way he could think of that these two would work together. But he believed that could happen. And you're like, well, wait, that's crazy. He's going to kill his son and burn— Well, see, Abraham had had this event years ago where, where the angel of the Lord had said, Why do you laugh? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Abraham just guessed wrong how God was going to meet out the paradox. But you see, the issue here is when you have faith, there is still a, qu a major question of what your faith is in. You see, if you don't have faith in Jesus, then this isn't for you at this moment. But you see, if you believe in Jesus, you're like, I believe. I, I'm going to receive that promise. I'm going to—I believe in Jesus. Okay, fine. Okay. See, there's still a question of what is the real object of your faith? And I don't mean what you say the real object of your faith is. I, I'm asking, I mean, what is the real object of your faith? Because you could put your faith in your faith. What makes this work? What is the one thing that ultimately is the foundation of it all that makes it work? See, a lot of people, it really is their faith. They believe that if they believe well enough, because God has made the promise, God will not be able to help but actually fulfill the promise. And so their hope really is in their performance. They say they believe they're saved by grace because God freely saves them. But in their real life, the motivational structures of their heart, they really are baking on the fact that their faith is good enough that they fulfilled their obligations to the covenant. And now God has to do what he said. Or it's in the promise, right? Like Abraham could have said, look, I've got a son. I've got, I got, I've got a son. I'm home free. I'm not killing him. He could have put his faith in the promise. You see, the whole purpose of the test, you see, it's, it's, a lot of people look at the testing of Abraham and they say, oh, look, it's a test. And God was just testing him. And isn't that cruel? Okay, wait a second. That's all—if you've ever been a coach or a parent, what you know is, is that tests that are trials aren't simply evaluations. People become themselves in the test. It's kind of like college basketball. Louisville was not the champion until they became the champion in the test. And similarly, in faith, 
We don't, it is the test. In the test itself, we find out what we really think. Abraham didn't even know who he was. Until God said, listen, here's what you're going to do. And he had to find, he got to find out who he was. Because if you look at his track record, nobody knows who Abraham was except God. But it took, it took the trial to find out who he was. And what we found out was that ultimately it was God he put his faith in. And you see, if your faith is in either of these, it's Christian faith that's really idolatry, isn't it? Because if you're trusting in your faith, that's your God. That's what you're trusting in to save you. That isn't God. And if you're trusting in some kind of promised blessing or something you can meet out for yourself, when the paradox comes, what are you going to pick? Like when the moral conundrum comes of the good life you're hoping to get for yourself and the problem that has come into your life, and you have to pick between going the way of what looks like misery by trusting in God or taking moral things into your own hands and doing what you want to get what you're after— Every moral conundrum is essentially a sacrifice of Isaac. You're deciding whether to bet on this or to bet on that. Every time. The trial defines who we are. And you see, for Abraham, ultimately, this, this sec- that second picture of faith is basically this. Faith is when you won't withhold your dearest thing when the command of God is a paradox you can't make any sense of. That's what real—that's what faith— that is there and it's really beginning to mature looks like. It's when the thing that you know you have to do doesn't make any sense at all. You have no idea how it's going to turn out right. And yet, you don't withhold your son, your only son who you love. The very dearest thing, your very life, what, is, what you think is life itself to you, you are willing to let go of and to not hold as its own idol when the Word of God is not clear, it is paradoxical, and you have no idea how it's going to work out. Do you just believe that on some level, there isn't anything too hard for God? And it was God's will all along to bring laughter. You see, because Abraham had already been through this once. He'd already been through the impossible once, and he just failed then. Right? And now, you might think, okay, well— on one level, that makes some sense, but so the idea is, okay, so faith is believing a paradox. What's that paradox? It could be innumerable things, right? Yeah, that's true, but there actually is a paradox right in this passage that is the first one we're charged to believe. You don't have to go very far to, to see the first paradox, and the, that paradox is actually the substitutionary atonement, right? That in this passage, all sacrifices up until this time, the way it worked was this. God demanded something of us. We took something at our own expense, and we attempted to offer God something in keeping with what he deserves. And what, one of the things that God reveals throughout the Bible is that is a totally losing proposition, even if you take the thing that's your very life. But the way God actually works is, is that the, the, what he demands of us, he provides for us. That is essentially the good news of Christianity. God does not lessen his righteous demands— what he does is he supplies what is required of us to meet those righteous demands. It's called a substitutionary atonement, right? So instead of Isaac, God provides the lamb through which they make the sacrifice. If you remember that passage, that came up three times in the passage, right? Isaac asks Abraham where the lamb is, and what does he say? God himself will provide the lamb, right? And then when he gets there, it says— he, Abraham named the mountain the Lord will provide. 
Do you know, you know what the tradition that Mount Moriah is? The Temple Mount. The mountain of Jerusalem. Right? And if you work it out, Gerar and Beersheba, there's only one donkey, so three people are on foot. So in three days, you can't figure going more than about 50 miles through hilly, desert-like terrain. That's it's about right. Right? There, there was—I don't, I don't know if you are putting this together already. There was another sacrifice on that mountain sometime later. A sacrifice that God provided to meet his own righteous demands that we could never provide so that we wouldn't have to take the one thing that we love, our very life itself, and sacrifice it to God, but instead we could receive the life that he's given us as a gift from God, his own righteous demands met in the sacrifice that he provided himself for us. through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the response that some people have to that is, well, that's fantastic. The response other people have to that is, how, Nick, how does that possibly work? Lots of people have looked at Christianity and laughed at it and said, how is it possible that my moral debt is paid by somebody else? That doesn't work. Right? And that's one of the reasons why we refer to Christianity not as a derived religion that we figured out in our own heads, but as a revealed religion. There are certain things God has told us that they work. They are a promise, and we believe them or they don't. Like, I've, I believe in theology. That is to take the things God said and figure out how they make full sense so we can understand them more fully, right? I've given my life to that. I, I believe it's a worthy goal. But on one level, the paradox of the atonement isn't any harder to figure out than take your son and go kill him, but yet I've promised to redeem the whole world through him. Ultimately, it comes down to which one of these, th- these three things you put your hope in. And whether or not in the midst of the paradox, you can believe that what God said is actually right. Whether or not the atonement actually works. That's the, par- the first paradox that God claims for himself. He, the, how can he credit faith? Or how can he credit righteousness for faith? How does that work? How is that possible? How can God count unrighteous people, people who Romans says are his enemies, how can he count them as right with himself through just faith? There has to be a means for that. And you see, in this passage, he's already pointing forward to the means that he has already chosen, the way through which Abraham and Isaac's line, he would bless all people. The one lamb on Mount Moriah, he would ultimately provide Jesus. So he could credit faith to unrighteous people who at one point used to laugh at his promise, but now laugh that, they did, that there was a time when they didn't believe it. And to make a kind of people that when even the way forward is so paradoxical, they can't even understand how it could move forward. They withhold nothing from the one in whom they can put their full trust. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, um, we pray that as we look at this passage, a 3,000-year-old passage, of how you talk to this one desert sheik whose faith was extremely intermittent. Help us to take an extraordinary amount of comfort at you, the one who graciously keeps fulfilling the promise when we fail. But also to recognize that faith is a really real thing. It really looks like something. And that the faith that you count as righteous is something that has substance. And that we, we really have to, we have to think about what it means to believe in and trust your promise. And I pray that we would be able to believe and entrust the promise that you have provided, the lamb or the sacrifice necessary for us to be set right with you. 
so that we could experience having righteousness credit us, that we could be set right with you and everything else, that we could receive back the blessing and not have to put the knife to it to try to impress you, but to know that all things have been provided for us, both the Son, our life, and the Lamb, what we need for righteousness' sake. And help us to worship you and love you and be filled with joy at you, the great provider. Pray in Jesus' name.